0: Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome in to another episode of the Prospect Podcast. And I am happy to announce that regular guest, Matthew Collar, is back in the saddle after a pretty hectic First week of free agency for the Minnesota Vikings. I DM'd you the other day. I didn't see the Patrick Peterson signing happen. I don't know if anyone did, but he's now a Minnesota Viking. But you're back to talk draft today. How was last week? in terms of your schedule and handling everything that happened transaction-wise for the Vikings?
1: Well, of course, the Vikings decided to do everything right after I had finished Mm. other podcasts about what (laughs) they were going to do. So there was a lot of, "Uh uh-oh, I just finished this podcast and edited it and posted it, and now I have to do another one, and that's just sort of typical of free agency season. I also did not see the Patrick Peterson thing coming. Delvin Tomlinson, I wasn't super surprised, and I think that's a really good decision, but the Peterson one now I don't know if I'm taking a cornerback off the draft table for the Vikings I think I probably have to but I don't think that they should right and so it's kind of interesting for both perspectives that you know with the defensive line they address the run game while well, they didn't sack anybody last year and they get a, a corner but he's an old corner and I don't know what he has left so they should still draft one so it's uh, it's been interesting both from a perspective of this team and from how it will impact the draft
0: yeah, I don't think anything the Vikings did last week like precludes them from taking another player at D-tackle, corner, whatever. Uh, but in today's episode, we're going to obviously talk about the draft. And we're going to talk all about the pro day circuit. And I kind of like made fun of it before. And I've written about this saying like, we're going to see these crazy fast 40s and three cones that are setting records. I think we're about, what, like a third or, or half the way through the circuit. I don't think we've seen anything or a consistently absurd uh, figures from really any of uh, the programs that have held their pro days already. We'll have them all the way through early April. Uh, And I want to specifically talk about five prospects that I've been monitoring during the pro day circuit that I think um, have done a lot for their draft stock or have had Really impressive workouts. We're going to run through them and just talk about each player. They're all relatively well-known guys. This is not a seventh rounder that jumped 40 inches, and now we're talking about him in the second or third round. These are all relatively marquee players. Most recently, yesterday, South Carolina cornerback J.C. Horn, son of Joe Horn, uh, formerly of the New Orleans Saints, and you mentioned it before, we're, we're certainly getting old because I vividly Remember watching Joe Horn tear it up for the Saints when they weren't very good. Uh, at his pro day at South Carolina, 41.5-inch vertical, 11-foot-1-inch vertical, and a 4'3", 940, with 33-inch arms. Now, I haven't really talked about him as someone that is even near the top of my quarterback rankings but there's a lot of debate. Is it Caleb Farley? Is it Patrick Sertan at C D one in terms of the consensus? And Sertan worked out. He worked out very well. Uh, I think JC Horn with this explosive of a workout, and I think to his credit, he decided to not do the short shuttle or the three cone. He didn't want to, you know, put any bad numbers out there. I think he kind of inserted himself into that cornerback number one discussion in terms of which cornerback could be the first off the board.
1: Isn't it interesting that all of us will say – oh, we're not going to let these pro days really impact what we think. They're like, wow, what a vertical, (laughs) right? (laughs) Look how long his arms are. Uh, You know, the one thing that he really does have going for him, aside from the speed element of it, and I would have been interested to see how he did the quickness drills, but you make a good point there that they, if if they didn't feel like, and his agents didn't feel like he was going to put up great numbers there, then you are smart to just kind of avoid that and leave that to the imagination. But his size, Being six foot one, when you add those athletic elements, you add the long arms. Because sometimes we talk about a guy being tall. Oh, he's six one, he's six foot, he's six two, and then he doesn't have the long arms. It's kind of like not being that tall, and it all sort of sounds silly at this point when we're talking about arm lengths. But that stuff has been found to somewhat, you know, connect to success in the NFL. Uh, But that was my was going to be my question for you: is does that put him? With Patrick Sertan, Asante Samuel Jr., like all these guys who are the sons of former players that, like you said, make (laughs) us feel extremely ancient. Because, you know, Horn, his numbers last year improved quite a bit from the year before. He allowed only a 54 quarterback rating on throws into his coverage. How about this? Eight catches on 24 targets, according to Pro Football Focus. So I mean, did we uh, were we overlooking him as a potential CB one, or are we getting too excited about Pro Day?
0: Well, first off, your point is perfect because I told myself that I'm gonna not get excited about it. I haven't really like tweaked any grades for any of these players because I think to your last point, like we saw or like I watched JC Horn relatively early on in the pre-draft process and. He looks like someone that is a man-to-man specialist. He looks pretty long. He looks sudden. I wrote that in my scouting report for him. I don't know if I saw explosiveness, like 41 half inches, and 11-foot broad jump. I think, again, from an NFL's perspective, he is probably going to go in the first round now. Like it, There was maybe, like, is he a fringe first-rounder? Is he going to be the third or the fourth corner? I mean, that is a round-one cornerback, profile every day of the week like for the last 10 years look back if you're jumping that high and that far at that size with that arm length you're going in the first round the thing I don't like about him and I think this speaks to uh being a little bit too excited about a pro day is that I don't think he plays to that level of explosiveness and athleticism on the field and like you said I would have loved to see him in the three cone or the short shuttle because I wrote that he has oily hips and good suddenness, but he's not elite in any area. And you would think 41 and a half inch vertical, eleven foot broad jump, long arms, like and he plays man to man that he must just be in the hip pocket of every wide receiver he covers. And I didn't really see that. I saw him play overly grabby and a lot of flags down the field. And to me, that normally says that a corner is struggling to stay with a pretty fast or pretty quick wide receiver. So there's a little bit of a disconnect there for me. I'm not actually completely solidified with my cornerback rankings, just in case anyone tests horribly or tests amazingly. Um, But I'm pretty sure he's going to land like just outside the first round as my cornerback five or six. Um, And and that's even considering the explosiveness because I think his recovery speed is good. You would see that on film. But as we've said a million times, you need to be able to deal with these ultra-quick separators at the line of scrimmage. And we saw it with Jeffrey Akuda last year. We saw it with C.J. Henderson. They were man, special, man specialists that were great in the Big Ten and the SEC, long, super athletic, and they both got torched their entire rookie season. You can't beat up DeAndre Hopkins and Stephon Diggs and Adam Thielen at the line of scrimmage you have to be able to stick with them and to mirror down the field. So I think Horn is a good prospect, but it's it's funny. It's almost like the last one of these guys that has their pro day closest to the draft will have the most buzz when in reality that shouldn't be the case.
1: Well, I wonder what you think about the man corner thing, because it seems like it is his style to be physical and use that size and length that he has. Um, But we kind of put these guys in buckets in college and there is some things that get transferred over from college to the NFL, but usually NFL defenses have a lot more going on to them that cornerbacks need to process. And as you mentioned, the quality of competition is just not repeatable. I mean, who you're facing in college, you might your whole college career face one or two guys as good as you'll face on a weekly basis in the NFL. So I wonder how you evaluate that when you're looking at, how they play man? Because I mean, with someone like, to use a Vikings example, Cameron Dansler, how he played against Jamar Chase was what everybody leaned on last year because you know, there's only so many guys who you could say are of Jamar Chase's talent level. Is that how you do it? Do you look at kind of who they faced that was the best when they were playing like a man press or just kind of more body of work?
0: More body of work. Uh, and with JC Horn, there's a perfect example with this that, His film against Seth Williams of Auburn is up there as the best individual film that I've watched of any prospect. I wrote about that at CBS Sports a few weeks ago, like the top five individual games. And J.C. Horn had two interceptions in that game, I believe three or four pass breakups. And against a six-foot, two-and-a-half, 215-pound wide receiver in Seth Williams that tries to win with being physical and rebounding the football... That is right up JC Horn's alley. So you could watch that game and say, hey, Seth Williams is probably going to get drafted somewhere in the middle of the 2021 draft and look at what he did. It's, you know, against an SEC wide receiver. I kind of want to see him, and I didn't see it a lot on film, against someone who's clearly quicker than him and is not going to try to run into his press coverage and bench press him down the field. Because I think at that size, with those 33 inch arms, uh, that plays right into what he wants to do. And I think that was a big issue with Jeffrey Akuda. He checked the length and the athleticism and the speed boxes last year, and then he couldn't even get his hands on Devontae Adams, like in either of the games that he played against him. So I liked what I saw against the six foot three rebounder in Seth Williams, but with J.C. Horn, and, and that's kind of why this pro day hasn't really uh, changed my evaluation of him because I, I still want to see him short area quickness and a mirroring. And to go a, a little bit philosophical for one second, I think it's always been a thought that like if you're a great man press man corner that that sets you apart that's like really difficult to do and you have a leg up on the rest of the corners. but the NFL is like 65 to 70 percent zone coverage. And forever, there was always a, hey, oh, he's a zone corner. He's just a zone corner. That's not as difficult. It would almost be a negative connotation. To me, I would take a zone cornerback that had a ton of ball production over a big physical and maybe even super explosive press man specialist. I think that zone corner can acclimate to the NFL a lot quicker than someone like J.C. Horn.
1: Well, that likely means that they're being asked to read a lot of route combinations, and mm-hmm. that's the whole NFL is that all the defenses are designed with the pattern matching and things like that where you have, you know, number one, two, three, and if they go this way, you got to go that way and all that sort of stuff that you have to process quickly, and you have to really be able to read route combinations and read tendencies blazing fast, and zone corners are asked to do that. Richard Sherman is the all-time example of just this genius at the position and who has a natural feel for making plays, and I think that's one of the bigger things I look at, and with Horn, he's got the two interceptions. That's it. I don't think interceptions are by any means, the be all end all, but I do love to see how many pass breakups they have, and I don't buy into the excuse, oh, nobody threw his way. Like if you're going to be a top drafted corner, you got balls thrown your way at some point during your college career. You should make plays on those footballs, and because if you don't, then are you going to do that at the next level? I don't think that that happens very often. So, so do you still? Where do you have him relative? to, like, on on your list, I mean, um, J.C. Horn. If you're not moving him, where do you have him presently?
0: I have him at cornerback number five, behind Caleb Farley, Asante Samuel Jr., Patrick Sertan, and Efitu Melifonu. So, like, I still think he's a good prospect. I believe – let me look at my big board here. Number 44 overall. So early second round, a team needs a starting corner. That's a very reasonable – time to pick you know your cornerback number two that you hope becomes cornerback one if he goes like top 15 now and you ask him to be your number one corner and be on an island I don't I'm not saying that I don't think he can do it but I think you don't really know if he can do it yet when you watch and I always bring up this point when I watched Tredavious White at LSU he had an insane amount of pass breakups he was playing man he was playing cover Uh, three, cover one. It didn't matter. He was always around the football. And in that draft class with Marshawn Lattimore and Gary and Conley, he didn't test very well. And I think landing in Buffalo, they play a lot of zone that helped him. But like to what you said, I want to see what I'm going to ask of that cornerback or really of that prospect in general. I don't, especially if I'm going to pick him in the top 15 or the top 20 second round. You can take a little bit of a gamble and say, hey, we love the size. We love the explosiveness. Let's see if he can man up on an island. But if we see him go top 20, top 25, top 15, I just think that'll be a little bit too early for J.C. Horn. I always uh, enjoy it. when it happens, honestly. Like, I,
1: I always think yeah. it's
0: fascinating. Somebody has this great pro day. Let's see.
1: <laughs> At least it's better this year than agents taking videos and claiming mm. that someone ran a 4-3 win. We can all time the video.
0: Yeah. I think we've moved past that. Maybe this will be, like, one of the few positives coming out of coronavirus that, like, we know. Like, I think agents haven't really done that because they're having their pro days, and that's the only thing that we can really gauge it on. And with technology today and everyone sitting at home on their computers, it's like, don't try to say Brashad Perriman ran a four one nine. We can time that. We know. Uh, Moving on, staying on the defensive side, Texas edge rusher Joseph Osai. He had an amazing workout, I believe, last week at Texas, whenever it was. Nearly six foot four, 256 pounds. So he checks those boxes. Almost 34 inch arms, which is like offensive tackle arms, like long for an offensive tackle. 41 and a half inch vertical and a 10 foot 11 inch broad jump. Now, Joseph Osai, I think after this, uh, we got a little first round buzz for him, or it, it kind of percolated a little bit. Uh, And he's someone that I have, let's see, just a little bit. He's my edge rusher number five right now. And I have him and have had him in my first round, number 27 overall. He's someone that I I think with this workout, I mean, those are crazy numbers for an edge rusher. But I think this was a little bit of a case of double counting because he looks really explosive, bendy, flexible. His lower half seems to really be generating a lot of power on every rush so I like him I think if he goes in the late first round to one of those teams that might need a pass rusher that was in the playoffs last year I, and again I, I think that's a first round pass rusher profile I would be completely fine with that although he's not the most refined with his hands I think the athleticism and the bend and the hustle are there for a first round edge rusher
1: so it might feel weird to talk about a guy and how high he jumps for being an edge rusher because usually doesn't have to do that very often. And in the NFL, if you jump up too much as a defensive end, the tackle will throw you on the ground really hard. (laughs) Um, But when it just comes to the pure physical explosiveness, that's the job. It's like the the snap is taken and how quick can you get off that edge? And and when somebody puts up numbers like this, then you start talking about the guys who are elite in those areas who put up big sack numbers. And I, I saw a really interesting thread from the guy who runs relative athletic scores that puts percentiles on entire, you know, pro days or entire uh, combines. And he was talking about how 75, 80%, like, athletes percentile athletes are usually the ones who make the pro bowl if you go through everybody who's made the pro bowl it's almost always those guys are the average player so you want to look for somebody at this position where the explosiveness rules the one question i have about joseph asai is just it's really like one year of production um You know, he didn't have a ton of sacks before the 2020 season. And of course, everybody played fewer snaps in 2020 than they did in 2019. So uh, are we calling him like a mid-tier production pass rusher? Are we calling him a lower tier production for his entire career? Like, how do you deal with that part of it?
0: Yeah, the production is probably why he's not a little bit higher because, and I'm staring at my grading system, reading my report that I wrote weeks ago or months ago on him. And that would really be the only clear cut negative is that there wasn't two or three years of production. It was really one shortened season. Um, So that's probably why I don't have him higher up. Um, But I think what you said about, you know, when you're wondering, or if anyone's wondering, why do you care about verticals like that? The the broad jump and the vertical are kind of testing the same thing, obviously. And he's not only explosive off the ball, but I think he's really flexible. He's bendy. He can dip low, even at almost six foot four underneath a towering offensive tackle, flatten to the quarterback. And to me, I, I would call him, and this kind of speaks to the point about his production. Throughout every draft class, there's a few guys that I would call ascending pass rushers, where like they're either young or they only had like one season of production. Their handwork gets a little bit better. They get a little bigger. They get a little stronger. That is Joseph Osai. So I could see a team like the Minnesota Vikings being like, hey, this is our type. He's a physical freak. He has a decent set of pass rushing moves, but he really leans on that explosiveness, of course, and that outside speed rush. Let's coach him up a little bit, and we could have another really quality pass rusher on our hands if he slips to the second round or if they move up with all those extra picks so he is one of the few and there's a few others later in the draft but he's among the top tier edge rushers Joseph Asai is the one that I've like labeled when I've been writing about him as an ascending player so I don't really hate that he doesn't have two or three years of high level production.
1: So would you rather have Pay, who's talked about as maybe the first edge rusher off the board at I'm just going to pick a random draft selection, say 14. Just pick that totally out of the air. Um, It's not the Vikings slot at all, I promise. So let's say you were 14, <laughs> or would you rather trade back and take Joseph Asai and pick up some extra draft capital? I, I mean, I'm applying this to the Vikings, but of course it could go for any team that's in the middle and looking for an edge rusher. pay with his ceiling or trade back and go Joseph Asai?
0: I would go Joseph Asai because I think – like you just said, trading back, you can probably get Osai in the later portions of the twenties and you can get an extra pick. I think just that in and of itself, two picks is better than one. That's kinda the way to navigate the draft more often than not. Um and I don't like looking at my grades, like there's not that big of a difference between Quiddy Pay and Joseph Osai beyond the fact that Quiddy Pay is like listed at like two eighty and and I mean Joseph Osai six four, two fifty six, he's a little smaller. And quitty pay's probably sturdier against the run. But in terms of like what they give you as a pass rusher, they lean on their outside speed rush because they're explosive. And we started to see some handwork and some one on one wins with pass rushing moves later in their careers. Neither of them were like insanely productive in twenty nineteen, but then they played better in their final season. So I think he pay alone in the middle of first round or Joseph Asai, even value wise, like getting him alone at like twenty eight, I think the team will be happier than picking Quitty Pay like inside the top fifteen.
1: The uh, the next guy on your list is Northwestern's Greg Newsom. Anybody jump higher than him from the pro day circuit? Because I didn't feel like I heard a whole lot of buzz for him for a first round draft pick, and now it's out there.
0: Well, it actually started like a few weeks ago when Daniel Jeremiah, I think, put him in like the first round of of one of his mock drafts, and everyone's like a corner from Northwestern? What? And I'll be honest, I hadn't watched, I had heard about him, but I hadn't watched a ton of him. I had some like preliminary notes written down and I finally found some film. It wasn't actually that easy getting Northwestern film, all 22. Um, and yeah, he is not your normal Northwestern cornerback. I mean, there's a lot of these like blue collar guys that are overachievers like the whole team is every year, but I think he belongs in the same category as all of these tall explosive uh, corners that you would pick maybe in the first round or early in the second. The difference with him at Northwestern, they almost never put him on an Island. They played a ton of zone and said, keep everything in front of you. Don't let anything behind you. And if you see a comeback or a dig plant and drive on the football, and he did that very well. So to be around six foot, to have a 40 plus inch vertical, uh, to run a three-cone under seven seconds, I think he really, to have the full workout, he may have had the most, to this point, impressive workout of any of these corners. He's my cornerback number six, right behind J.C. Horn. Um, I, I really just like the plant and drive ability, the ball skills, and he's very effortless transi- turning and transitioning, and that if there is – a wide receiver that's running vertically behind him. He has the length, the hips, and the speed to recover. And he is not one of the corners that can't find the football. He's aware when it's arriving. So, And even in Daniel Jeremiah's, going back to him, uh, draft conference call a few weeks ago, I believe someone asked, like, oh, would he be a good fit for the Browns at 26, 28, whatever it is? And he's like, oh, he's not going to be there. So I don't know if that was Daniel Jeremiah, you know, with insight or just how much he liked him. But it would be pretty crazy to see a Northwestern corner, but he is a legitimate like first or early second round prospect. I have him at somewhere in the fifth. I have him at actually uh, 40 number or number 40 right now. So I guess he's ahead of JC Horn. Got to like recalibrate my uh, big board here. But yeah, I, I would be fine with him. And that uh, workout kind of coincides with someone that I believe should be picked somewhere from pick 25 to pick 45.
1: Sometimes I really respect Daniel Jeremiah's patience when he does those calls because oh, yeah. there will be quite. I mean, you're, the question even that you threw out there, you're like, really, um, will this guy be taken by my team? <laughs> like, yeah, I don't know, <laughs> I know, man, maybe. So bad. Um, so uh, Newsom, the thing that really popped out to me because I love to look at some of the data on these guys is just that. Uh, opposing quarterbacks throwing at him this year had zero luck. They threw for less than a hundred yards against him this year at a 31 passer rating, 12 for 34 passing. Now in past years, it wasn't quite that good. It was in 2018, not good at all, but 2019 was solid. His numbers in throwing in his direction and, yeah, you know, I think that there's something to that even though those can be small sample size numbers when somebody dominates them. And that's what you're looking for if someone comes from Northwestern. And the same thing, I felt the same way a little bit um for someone like Antoine Winfield Jr. at the safety position where this guy is just different. He looks like someone who should be playing in the SEC and not mm-hmm. in the Big Ten because he's just on another level athletically. And at least from Winfield, it was his playmaking. You mentioned sticking the foot in the ground and driving is Newsom's top talent. you got to have something that makes you stand above the Big Ten is the way I look at it, where you watch a guy and you go, okay, those those are not Big Ten skills. or this particular talent or your physical talent, takes you kind of above the rest and Newsom has that. And I I just think it's interesting about like evaluating guys versus the quality of competition where with someone in the sec, you don't so much need the pro day to tell you, you kind of Mm -hmm. already know because they're playing there with this guy. You need it. You really need to know, can he run this sub four, four at six foot one, because I'm not sure with the quality of competition and he proved that he could do it.
0: Yeah, I think he is a legitimate prospect and kind of going off what I said earlier about J.C. Horn. And it's interesting that him playing a bunch of man, you would think that his film would show this hyper agile, super sudden corner. I didn't necessarily see that. But with Greg Newsom playing a lot of zone, you saw him having to flip his hips and plant and drive on the football a lot. So it's not just a linear, explosive, long, fast corner, which are, those are all good things. It's the ability to change directions pretty quickly. Now, is he going to change uh, as quickly as a slot corner? No, but I think at, at six foot and around 190 pounds with long arms and that speed, he's smooth enough, and, and there's not a lot of stiffness to his game that he can, in general, not, maybe not deal with the elite wide receivers right away, but stay in the hip pocket of those players in terms of mirroring down the field.
1: Are you uh, buying four two nine for Eric Stokes, who is the next guy on your list? Do you believe anyone ran a four two nine in this world? I do not.
0: Uh, yes, he is next. Georgia, Georgia cornerback Eric Stokes, and I like looked up other verification of that, and then a few uh, articles said like, oh, between four two nine and four three four, he doesn't look like slow on film at all. Like no one on Georgia's defense looked slow last year. But I did not see 429. I mean, that's like insane uh, cornerback speed. But I liked Eric Stokes a lot, and he's in this group. I'm looking at my big board now. I have in the second round Tyson Campbell, Greg Newsom, Aaron Robinson, who is this really twitchy slot corner from UCF, Eric Stokes, and JC Horn, like all clumped together. That's just how it happened with my grading system from pick from number 39 overall to number 44 overall. So I think he does belong in that second tier of cornerback prospects and what I really liked about him is that Georgia they are probably behind Alabama in terms of the most complex defenses, like secondaries like Kirby Smart obviously being that Nick Saban protege, like he wasn't just running quarters the entire season. They were doing a lot of complex stuff. Eric Stokes made plays in man, what when it was off man, when it was press man, in zone, uh, he had an interception early in that Florida game off Kyle Trask and took it to the house. I liked the versatility from him and that a lot of times when he was uh, giving up a touchdown or a big play, it was a perfect throw and amazing coverage. Like In the Alabama game, Devontae Smith made a ridiculous catch in the back of the end zone that like only Devontae Smith could make where Eric Stokes like ran with Devonte Smith down the field was right in his pocket. And then the throw was perfect. Everything was good about that. So I liked Eric Stokes, certainly his speed and and, and you saw that on film athleticism length and that he is not scheme specific because we know, again, it's mostly a zone league, but defensive coordinators, that just adds more to what they can do. If you can say, Hey, I can man up for a quarter. And then in the second half, if we want to go zone heavy, I can make plays there too.
1: Now I don't know what he weighed in at his pro day. His listed weight is only 185, which makes me think it just is uh when you hear 185 nickel is he able to do that because when I looked at his, you know, PFF numbers of where he played, didn't play a whole heck of a lot in the nickel. It, you know, how do you deal with like those transitions because now all of a sudden guys will come into the league and play nickel right away and can I mean, make a really great career and be very valuable to their team as a nickel corner. Um, do you, do you see him at all that way, or how do you even figure out if a guy could transition to that when he didn't play there in
0: college? I don't see him as a nickel. I think he is six foot, and you're right, 185. I I think he was around that at his pro day too, like 182. I think rings a bell. So he's a little on the skinny side. I didn't see the ability to sink his hips and change directions like a slot corner. I mean, it's crazy being a draft analyst because it's almost hard to find a slot corner that is that sudden, just knowing like, okay, here are the slot receivers that you're going to have to deal with at the next level. And a lot of the elite receivers that I've talked about are at least in the slot, like 35 to 40% of the time anyway, to get that mismatch. I don't think he's a slot corner. I think he has to play on the outside and you can with Stokes, you can have him cover a middle of the road wide receiver in terms of quickness. But if he's dealing with super sudden, I think he'll have problems. You want him again for his zone savvy, his experience in the sec, the ability to play man. And then with his length and the speed down the football field, he's not going to allow a lot of big plays on the perimeter. So Maybe his coach, his defensive coordinator, secondary coach will say, hey, let's kick him into the slot. I almost think six foot is too too tall for the slot. I, I want my slot corner to be like 5'8 to 5'10 because that's to kind of mirror the type of players he's going to see. So I did not see that short area quickness for a nickel, but I think he'll be a good, very well-rounded outside cornerback in the NFL.
1: Yeah, the weight does concern me a little because it's probably like 20th percentile weight. And Mm -hmm. Julio Jones plays in the NFL. He will (laughs) throw you out of the way. These guys are so strong. DK Metcalf plays in the NFL. And, you know, when you're talking about those percentiles, I mean, they're figured out by what the league is made up of. So most of the corners who are this tall and maybe don't quite run in the four twos, allegedly, but they're also... you know, carrying a little bit more weight on their frame. They're a little stronger maybe, or um, just maybe built a little bit differently. So that would be a little bit of a concern for me, but you know, that's maybe, maybe nitpicking away at Eric Stokes a little bit, but I think you have to look at that speed and say, can you really run that speed if you weigh enough to play corner? Uh, The last one, tell me, is Milton Williams a defensive end or defensive tackle?
0: I think he's a D tackle. You see him on film. Uh, play on the edge a little bit and he looks a little out of position he was 6-3 and 284 at his pro day so that would be a pretty thick with a bunch of C's on the end of that defensive end if, if that's where he's playing in the NFL but Lance Zerline from uh, NFL Network who does all their draft grades and does a fantastic job with all those every year and, and, and their draft profiles uh, tweeted out the workout Four six two to four six five in the forty. And again, 6.3 three and two eighty-four. That's really a unique body type. Thirty-eight and a half inch vertical and a three cone of six point eight seven seconds. Now, with the pro days, we know the verticals and the broads probably can't be faked. Could a three cone be a little you know, a little quick trigger on the stopwatch from the Louisiana Tech Sports Information Director? Probably. But I will say this: Milton Williams is the most agile explosive interior defensive lineman in this class, that there are reps on film, and yes, against lesser competition, where he wins strictly with his first step and then his ability to get skinny between two blockers. Like He is someone that was kind of asked to take on double teams, probably too much. They ran a lot of three-man fronts at Louisiana Tech. It didn't really suit him. But when he was able to attack, like no guard and no center had any answer for how agile he was and Lance Irline tweeted that he's probably going to go in the second round Uh, I have him graded like just at the beginning of the third round I think because again I think the the size and the length limitations are going to be a problem against the run but if you just want a straight up the field pass rusher that actually does have some pretty powerful and effective hands Milton Williams is a guy that you need to kind of familiarize yourself with over the next month.
1: My question is, um, how does a guy with that type of athleticism end up at Louisiana Tech? Like, what happened here? He was only a two-star recruit. Um, Did he bloom late, like very late? And, I mean, even his production, 2019, 2020, it's good overall. I just want to know what happened there Uh, because somebody with that type of athleticism, just based on that alone and size, usually does not end up at Louisiana Tech.
0: Yeah, that's a really good question. The only thing I can think is that he may have been like undersized, quote unquote, coming into college. I mean, and maybe he bulked up, but what's funny is that like the undersized label is kind of going by the wayside with many positions that like 6'3", 284, yeah, he's going to not be able to anchor against a, a double team on a power run play, but five or ten years ago, six three, two eighty-four, it would have been like, oh, he's this small school guy from Louisiana Tech. He's way too small. Now I think six three two eighty four for your pass rushing three technique, like a lot of teams are totally fine with that. I like the fact that he's not like six foot two eighty four. Like he has nearly thirty-two inch arms. It's a little bit short, but the fact that he's six three with that weight and had that type of workout, um was very impressive, but at the same time, it's, it's kind of similar to Joseph Asai. Like You don't want to double count it because he looks like someone that got inserted from the SEC onto that Louisiana Tech roster. But he is in a what I think a pretty weak defensive tackle class, um, someone that when he gets picked second or third round has a good opportunity to outplay that draft position just because of the pass rushing prowess alone.
1: My only concern about him... Uh, Because I do think there's a place in this world now, like you said, for undersized defensive tackles, just trying to get after the passer, who play in situations. You still do need to stop the run, and how that's going to translate might be really tough. The other thing, too, is that his lowest PFF grade came against BYU, and they actually have a really good offensive line. That was another thing, too. When you look at the quality of competition of who he played this year— I mean, you're talking about UTEP, you're talking about, you know, University of Texas San Antonio, who he was killing, UAB, North Texas, when he played the one team that you saw protect the absolute hell out of Zach Wilson this year, which is one thing that, you know, is a question mark about Zach Wilson, the time he had to throw and the protection, Um, but that was where he performed at his lowest, and that, when figuring these things out is very tough. Somebody who dominates the lower level versus somebody who's average at the higher level and factoring all that in, it's almost impossible, but that would be the one thing that kind of popped to me on his you know, PFF grade sheet is, Oh, I recognize that offensive line that he got strut down by.
0: Yeah. And that was one of the first games that I watched for Milton Williams. And I was hearing, or like seeing all this buzz. And I was like, what? Like that's BYU's offensive line. Brady Christensen will get drafted. The rest of the line is not, you know, they're not sending that entire offensive line to the league, but it was one of the better offensive lines. You could see the traits from Milton Williams, but you're right. The production was not there. Although I do think that BYU did a good job kind of scheming to stop him and throwing a lot of chips and double teams at him. And lastly, even in those games where they were playing UTEP, uh, Georgia Southern, he was not very good against the run. Like he he was giving it his all and trying to get low, but at 284 and and like me being from Buffalo, I watched early in this past season where the Bills needed a nose tackle and they put Ed Oliver at like 290 at one technique, and that's when the Bills' run defense was getting gashed early in the season because and Ed Oliver is just sitting there just getting engulfed, and it's nothing against him as a player. It's just at 291 or whatever he is, like sub-300, you're not going to be able to hold up against the run. But like at Oliver with, with Milton Williams, it's all about penetration. He made some splash plays against the run with speed to power conversion, with the explosiveness, sustaining that speed to the quarterback or to the ball carrier. So those are the five pro-day standouts, I'll say. I mean, there's been quite a few, but those five have really – drawn my attention over the first couple of weeks of the Pro Day Circuit. Maybe we'll do another one of these after we get more workouts. we got some big ones coming up at the end of March and early April. For Matthew Collar, I'm Chris Cepasso. That's all we have for today on the Prospect Podcast.